0: Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Luke chapter 16? Luke chapter 16, which if you have one of the red Bibles, is on page 875. And uh, although we're going to look at the entire chapter this morning, I want to begin just with the reading of the first 18 verses. Um, And so if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 16, I'll read for us the first 18 verses. He also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat." He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful with much. And one who is dishonest in the very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, "'You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void.'" everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we ask now that you would give us ears to hear so that we may understand your word, eyes to see so that we might see clearly the glory of Christ in your instruction in this text. We also pray that you would move our hearts. Father, we want to be those who walk in obedience and live as if we know, because it indeed is true, that eternity awaits us. Let us not live as if this world is all there is. Would you comfort us? Would you convict us? Would you guide us? This morning, as we consider your word in Luke 16... And we ask this for our good and for your glory, and it's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, just to catch us up to speed a bit, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke over a number of months now. Only we've taken breaks here and there. We, we took a break after chapter seven, we took a break after chapter 15, and so it's been a little bit since we've looked at the Gospel. As we've looked at Luke's Gospel, we've not necessarily just taken it a paragraph at a time. It's it's quite a large gospel. And so uh, one thing that we've done is we've looked at it sometimes in larger chunks, like we're doing today, looking at all of chapter 16. But there's one reason why I wanted to take it in a little bit of, of a greater pace, look at it in a little bit of larger sections. And it's because of the way Luke writes his gospel If you remember from the opening verses of Luke's gospel, Luke says to us as he sets out that he writes for us an orderly account of the life, the ministry, the teachings, and events that unfolded in Jesus' life. Now, we've noted throughout that when Luke said orderly, he didn't necessarily mean chronologically. It doesn't always unfold in his gospel chronologically. Rather, Luke will take the events in Jesus' life and the teachings from Jesus' ministry, and sometimes he'll organize them, even if they're not chronologically right, he will organize them thematically so that you'll see something happen in Jesus' life or a teaching that Jesus makes or an event that, that happens in a, maybe you know, in a confronting the Pharisees or the like, and Luke will put them together, and as he puts them together, you can discern it's because there's a certain theme that he's pulling out. Well, I think we can see that when we look at chapter 16. Now, when you first read Luke 16, even the first 18 verses of the chapter, you may have recognized that it feels a bit disjointed. It begins with a parable about a shrewd manager and goes on with what he does with his master's money. And then in the next paragraph, verses 10 through 13, it speaks about money. Okay, so we're on the same page there. But then Luke goes on to include a time when Jesus rebuke the Pharisees, rebuke them about not understanding the way the law works, and even talks to them about divorce and remarriage before ending the chapter with another parable. In one sense, then, when you read Luke 16, you might think, you know, it feels like there are about four sermons here. You know, a sermon on this first parable, a sermon on how the Pharisees addressed the law, a sermon on divorce and remarriage, and then a sermon on the last parable. But if you step back, as we're doing today, and look at the chapter as a whole... I think we can see Luke's orderly organizing principle at work here. Note in chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus' first parable he tells starts with this line, there was a rich man. And then if you go down to verse 19, you'll notice that his last parable that he tells begins with this statement, there was a rich man. So, Luke brackets this chapter with two parables that begin the exact same way, about a rich man. And in the middle, he introduces us to the Pharisees again. Now, in one sense, if you've been reading through Luke's gospel, you're thinking, I don't need another introduction of the Pharisees. You've told us about them again and again and again. The Pharisees have, have, you know, come up in this gospel many times already. But this time, when Luke introduces them to us, he introduces them to us for a specific reason. He says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. In other words, that middle section is not getting away from this theme of riches or money or the fact that as believers, we have to understand how to handle our money well and appropriately. This chapter, as we read it, you can see phrases like rich man, unrighteous wealth, riches, money, again and again and again occurring throughout So, what then do we find in Luke chapter 16? I think we find through Jesus' teaching here that money does for us two things it provides for us an opportunity and it presents to us a danger. Now, if we were just doing a thematic sermon on money, there's much more that the Bible says about money and how believers handle money throughout than we're going to look at today. But I want to limit us. So what we see here in Luke chapter 16. And so, I first want to begin with that note about the opportunity money presents to us. And so, number one, money provides for us an opportunity for eternal blessing. Money provides for us an opportunity for eternal blessing. The chapter begins with this parable about a certain rich man, who had a money manager. This money manager would be somebody who kept the books for him. He would go out and and make loans of the master's money and collect debts from individuals with interest, obviously, so that the master can make more money. Well, one day, the rich man hears that the manager of his money is actually squandering his wealth. So he calls the money manager in, and he says, I'm going to let you go. You're gonna be fired, so go get the books all together and then bring them back to me, and then you'll be done. Now, at this moment, the money manager has this feeling of panic in him because he considers, if, if I lose my job now, I, I can't come up with the means of providing for myself. I mean, there's no way he's going to be a money manager for anybody else. He's already been known as being a dishonest or, or some, somebody who squanders his master's wealth. He considers the possibility of manual labor, but then he's honest enough with himself to say, you know what? I'm not strong enough to dig. That's not an option for me. He considers begging. But then he says, you know what? I'm too proud to beg. I would just feel shame. And then it comes to him. He has an idea. What he's going to do is before he hands the books back over to his master, while in this little time when he still has them in his possession, he's going to go to the master's debtors. And he goes to them one by one. Now, Jesus, in the telling of the parable, is only going to give us two examples, an example of where he went to one debtor and an example of where he went to a second debtor. But it actually looks like he went to all, or at least a great number of the master's debtors, because if you look at verse 5, when Jesus tells the parable, he says, so summoning his master's debtors one by one. In other words, he goes to all the debtors, but Jesus gives us two examples. To the first... He goes and he says, how much do you owe my master? And, and the man says to him in verse 6, a hundred measures of oil. And he says to the man, take down and write 50 on your bill. To another he goes and he says, how much do you owe my master? And he says, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, well, take your bill and write down 80. And so on and so forth. He goes to every one of the debtors, having them reduce their debt. Why? Why in the world would that be beneficial for him? Here's the reason why. In this culture, there was this uh, kind of agreed upon, understood principle that if someone extends grace or hospitality or gift to you, you are obligated then to measure that back out to them in return. And his thought was, if I do these people a favor, then when they hear that I've lost my job, they're going to feel obligated to take me in and care for me, so I'm gonna be cared for for life. Now, we might think to ourselves, <clears throat> I don't know that this is really going to work. I mean, how is it, I mean, well, what's it mean if you take uh, the first guy, right? He, he had 100 measures of oil, and the guy says right off 50, well, what's that worth, like a couple of nights or something, right? I mean, how, how is this really gonna work? But actually, if we understand it, in that moment, A hundred measures of oil was actually worth nearly three years of a man's labor. Three years of wages. So by reducing it in half, he probably earned for himself about a year and a half of somebody taking him into their home, providing for him, feeding for him, caring for him. A hundred measures of wheat would have been something like 10 years worth of wages. So to take 20% off that and bring it down to only 80 measures of wheat you owe, well, then that earns him, you know, 20% of 10 years is two years, maybe another couple of years of somebody taking him in, providing for him, caring for him, feeding him. So, in other words, this calculating, this calculated manager was calculating what it would cost to be able to provide for himself his entire life. And so, he works out this deal of reducing everyone's debt by just enough that he could look and say, now the rest of my life, These people are going to feel obligated. I'm going to be provided for, cared for, taken in, and fed. When word comes to his master as he brings back the books and finally gives them over to his master, the master, we're told in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. This is not to say that his master was thinking, "Wow, this was really great that you did this to me. Clearly, it was a dishonest move. It hurt his master. He was now going to collect less money than he was owed. But he applauded his shrewdness in kind of a way as if you might say, well played, you devil, right? That's what it seems the master's doing. You you pulled one over on me. You've really thought well about this. Now, Jesus tells us this parable, and then he commends an element in it. Again, we see this in verses 8 and 9. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For Jesus tells us, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, let's make clear here just a few things, clear up some notes. One, Jesus is not commending the man's dishonesty. In fact, he makes that clear when you read verses 10 through 12, he condemns individuals who are dishonest with what they have. So he's not commending the man's dishonesty. Second, when the text says unrighteous wealth, like you see in verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. It doesn't mean, Jesus is not merely talking about the money that we get by doing things which are wicked. In other words, he's not saying the money that you stole or something like this. No, he's calling all of our money, all that we have, Jesus refers to it in the story as unrighteous wealth. Not to say it's inherently wicked, but I think as to say the wealth of this world or worldly wealth, he might say, the wealth of this age, the money that belongs to this time, he calls unrighteous wealth. And then third, Jesus is treating our money as if it belongs to another, as if it belongs to the Lord. He makes this clear in verse 12. He says in verse 12, if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? In other words, Jesus wants us to understand that all the money that we have, all the possessions that we own, we're actually just stewards of them. They all belong to God. I said this to my mechanic recently when I said to him, I know all money I have is God's money. I just don't know why he wants me to give so much of it to you. This is Jesus' approach. So what then is Jesus commending? If he's not commending the man's dishonesty, what is he commending? Here's what he's commending. That the man understood while he had another man's money in his hands, he took the opportunity to use that money to provide for himself in the future. He took that money, reduced the debts, and provided for himself the place to stay. So what Jesus is saying is, that's how people in this world work. And in some sense, they're giving you a picture of what you need to do. Not to do something dishonest, but what Jesus is saying is this. The money you have, think of it this way. Just as this man has a master, you have a master, God. God has also put some money in your hands. It's not yours, it's his. But he's put it in your hands to manage it in this life. And what you and I need to do is we need to use that money that we are stewards of to provide for ourselves. The language Jesus use is, is to make friends who might receive us into eternal dwellings. What in the world does that look like? How do you and I use our wealth, the money we have, to make friends who will receive us in eternity? Well, here's the kind of picture I think Jesus is envisioning. Imagine if some of you were, uh, many of you weren't, but imagine if you were a member of Cornerstone Community Church back in 2013. And you were working at the time, and part of the reason you were working is because you took some of your money and gave to the church. And some of that money that you gave to the church uh, was used to provide salaries. For pastors that you've asked to set aside, not work full-time, but instead give their full-time to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And those pastors in 2013 began laboring in the life of an individual named Timothy O'Day. Timothy O'Day was one of our interns in the program. We were teaching him how to preach, how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible, how to, how to walk in faithfulness, how to oversee people so that he might be a faithful overseer of the church one day in 2015, we sent Timothy and his wife Haley to Salt Lake City. They went out there to plant a church. Now, this has happened a few times, but let me just use one example. There's a lady in Salt Lake City who walked out of Mormonism because she heard the gospel from somebody at the church that Timothy and Haley and others had planted there. She heard the gospel. Now, she's a member of Christ Fellowship Church, and she's being discipled through that church. Now, let's fast forward a bit to the day, way in the future, maybe we'll say, and let's say she dies. And then soon after that, you die. And as you close your eyes in this life and open them in the next, Jesus pictures for us, having used our wealth to make friends who will receive us into eternal dwellings, that lady who walked out of Mormonism and came to know Christ and was discipled through the ministry of Christ Fellowship Church there in Utah, saying to you, thank you for giving your money to the end that I was able to come to know Christ and be discipled by His people and follow Him. That's what Jesus is picturing. We could multiply that 10,000 times over, going 10,000 ways about how our money is used. But the reality is what Jesus is saying is your money provides for you an opportunity to invest in his work that comes with eternal blessings. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Your money can give, can be given to support the work of ministry. And then Jesus makes it explicit in verses 10 through 12 saying money is a small thing but you can use it to be blessed. Look at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteousness and unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give to you that which is your own? Now, again, by looking at Jesus' statements negatively, what he's saying negatively, if you've been dishonest in little, you'll be dishonest with much. If you haven't managed that which is another, how will you ever be given your own true wealth? But flip it around positively, what Jesus is saying is, if you are faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. If we faithfully manage the resources that belong to God, that he's temporarily put in our hands, it is an opportunity for us to store up treasure, and blessing in heaven. If we just paint this out very practically, you and I, if we think of it this way, Jesus has said, you've got this life. Here's some money. Use it to invest in my kingdom and my purposes and my work, and you'll be blessed. And yet, for many of us, I think there can be this hesitation because we're very much drawn to what our money can do for us here and now, instead of blessings in eternity. C.S. Lewis one time compared us to a little kid playing in a sandbox. And his parents come to him because they wanna take him to a vacation at the beach. And the little kid, because he doesn't have a clear picture of all the sand that is at the beach, is unwilling to get out of that sandbox. That's pretty much the situation we're in when we want to hold to our money tightly. We have a resource that could provide for us eternal blessings, to secure for us riches that would last forever, and yet we're tempted sometimes to hold on tight of them. And so what I just want to say to us very practically is the New Testament over and over and over again encourages us to be faithful in giving The text Dave read earlier, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. In the Old Covenant, the way that it worked is the Lord prescribed to His people, I want you to take a tithe. The word tithe means 10%. In the Old Covenant, the Lord said, I want you to take 10% of your money, and they would give it to the work at the tabernacle or the temple, the work of the Lord there. Now, when you get to the New Covenant, the way I think of Old Covenant instructions like that, like the tithe, is there's something like, training wheels on a bicycle. The reason you put training wheels on a bicycle is because the kid is not developed enough to ride the bike. And the training wheels put a guide on it. it helps him to understand until you're ready, this is how you study yourself. And eventually, when the kid has matured and he's able to ride the bike well, the training wheels come off. And he can ride the bike better than you ever could with training wheels on it. I think that's how giving is in the old Old testament the lord says to his people take 10 percent, give it to the work of the church give it to the work of the ministry give it to the work of uh, tabernacle and temple in the new covenant the training wheels have come off because you and i have received the spirit and we have been transformed we are people who actually should if we're believers delight in taking the resources that god has temporarily put in our hands and using them for his work And so the wheels have come off. Therefore, I think 10% is a good baseline number to give to the church. But I pray that you and I would be so captivated by the Lord's grace in giving to us that we would seek to grow in that more and more and more. Just practically speaking, in my own life, uh, when I proposed to Lily uh, and she said yes, I was working full-time, making $15,000 a year. So obviously, she married me for my money, right? But I'll say just at that time, I'd been raised in the church with this principle of giving being put in my heart. And so then, we, we faithfully tried to give, making a baseline 10%. And our prayer over the years is, as the Lord has blessed, we have sought to increase our percentage of giving by His grace. And we have never found ourselves regretting it. When we were making $15,000 a year, the Lord was providing for us in ways that were amazing. My car that was 27 years old just kept running. Our HVAC units that when we moved into the house were 14 years, or 21 years old when we sold the house 14 years later, had not been needing to be replaced. Then the Lord's blessed with a little more, and sometimes He seems fit to let things then break. And say, I've given you money to buy them, right? Uh, Sometimes he wants to give his money to the HVAC guy. Sometimes he wants to give them to the car salesman, right? But over the years, we've seen the Lord's blessing, and I know what I'm saying. You all can multiply with stories all day long. The Lord is gracious. I was was not going to tell the story, but I'm going to go ahead and tell it for the sake of time. So if I run late, sorry. We'll blame it on this moment right here. A few years back, I was working, trying to think through, okay, how much money we we're going to make this year. I wanted to increase our percentage of giving if I could. And when I ran the numbers on increasing that percentage of giving, we were pretty close to a certain round number I wanted to hit. I shared this story, I think, before with some of you, but I went to Lily and I said, if we give $1,600 more this year, we'll hit a certain round number that I, I would just like to hit. And um, she said, do we have $1,600 extra? And I said, well, no, we don't. And she said, well, then how are we going to do this? And I, I don't know. And um, so she, she said to me in her wisdom, why don't we just pray and ask the Lord to give us $1,600 extra. And uh, if he does that, we'll give it. <clears throat> so we sat around the kitchen table. I said to my kids, this year we want to give what we've aside we to give, but I also want to give an extra $1,600 if the Lord provides it. So let's pray that God would provide it. We begin to pray together as a family. Only a few weeks passed, and I got a call from a friend of mine working at North Greenville University. He said, Lee, if you'll put together a preaching class, an online preaching class with lectures and all, I'll pay you $1,500. So I said, great, I came home, I told the kids, we're asking for $1,600, I got a job today for $1,500, we can give that. So Tom agreed that it was a good work for me to do, and so we sat in the sanctuary at our old building, and Tom figured out the video work, and we recorded these 20-minute lectures of me standing in front of a whiteboard teaching people about preaching, probably saying stuff like, don't go off script and tell long stories in the middle of your sermons. <laughs> so we were able to give that $1,500. <clears throat> and then the year trekked on. I mean, I, it wasn't lost on me. It wasn't lost on any of my family that we had been praying for the Lord to give us $1,600 extra to give, and he had give us 15. dollars Time goes by, and then in October... A college student, I'm going to name him, Jeremiah Marcelino. A college student who I knew was going to Union and had a great number of student loans. He was in a much worse position than me financially. And he called me and he said, Pastor Lee, would you meet with me over at the coffee shop at Union? And I said, sure. And so we met. And Jeremiah began to tell me a story. He said, this summer... I've been studying the Bible in a way, a more faithful way than I have been previously. And the story that's really captured me is this story in Luke 16 about the parable of the dishonest manager. And I prayed that the Lord would show me more ways that I can faithfully use his money to bless others and, and store up blessing for myself in eternity, to use the opportunity that the money has given me. And he pulls out his wallet. And he says, every time that I go to see my grandparents, I, when I leave, my grandpa will give me a $100 bill. And so he pulls it out of his wallet, and he says, as I've prayed about this, I think I'm supposed to give it to you. And I said, I don't know if you're supposed to give it to me. I do know if you do, I'm supposed to give it to the church. And then I told him the whole story. And of course, his faith was built up, feeling like the Lord had directed him. My faith was built up. Hopefully, the faith of my children was built up. Brothers and sisters, that's what our God does. He gives to us his money so that we might give it. Does that not sound like the Lord to say, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to be blessed by giving what I give to you? How easy is that? And yet... There may be some of us who say, well, I'm content without the eternal blessings that that money is going to give me if if I use it faithfully, so I'm content just to hold on to it. Well, then that brings us to our second point. Money presents to us the danger of pulling us away from obeying the Lord. Money presents to us the danger of pulling us away from obeying the Lord. There's, there's a warning in the second half of this chapter about what money can do. It's already been alluded to in verses 10 through 12 when Jesus says, if you've not been faithful in little, then you won't be faithful in much. If you've not been faithful with what you don't actually own, then you'll never be given what is yours. But in verse 13, then, he makes the warning explicit, saying, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus says, if you make your life by holding tight to money, letting money be your master, that is incompatible with serving God. The two simply do not fit together. Then in verses 14 and following, he shows us a picture of what money can do. In verse 14, again, as I said, we're introduced to the Pharisees, but this time, we're told the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees are sitting at the side, they hear Jesus talking about, giving this warning about money, you can't serve God and money, and the Pharisees are just ridiculing Jesus, thinking, we're doing quite well, we're chasing after riches, we love money, and look at us all as well and Jesus says not so fast what he says to them in verse 15 in verse 15 is actually their heart is not in a good place in verse 15 he says he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God Jesus says directly to the Pharisees if you think about yourselves that you're walking in holiness you're walking in a way that pleases God but you're not Actually, what you're doing is you're simply seeking those things that make you look good in front of men. You value the kinds of things that men value, not what God values. And I got news for you, he says at the end of verse 15, what men value, what's exalted among men, that is an abomination in the sight of God. So first of all, they value things God doesn't value. They exalt man in their desires more than they exalt God. And then in verses 16 and 17, he tells them, you're not even faithfully obeying the law. In verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What's going on in verses 16 and 17? Let's take it a bit at a time. When Jesus says, the law and the prophets, that's a description of the Old Testament scriptures, the law and the prophets were until John, what does he mean? What he means is, the Old Testament scriptures were constantly, yes, there were commands, yes, there were procedures, there were descriptions of Israel's life and history, but also all of those things were also prophetically pointing to the one to come, Jesus Christ. So, when you read the Old Testament, that's why you can read so many things and say, this looks like it's pointing to Jesus. It's because it is, again and again and again. The Old Testament then was saying, Jesus says, the law and the prophets were until John. The Old Testament was saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. John says, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So, John, if you will, is like the last prophet of the Old Testament scriptures, the last one who had the privilege of saying, and there he is. And what Jesus then says is, the good news of the kingdom is preached, this gospel message is being preached, and everyone forces his way into it. Now, if you're using one of the Red Bibles, it gives you an alternate translation in footnote 8 that I actually think is the better translation. Uh, Footnote 8 tells us that it could be translated, uh, and everyone is forcefully urged into it. That is to say, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is here, God's king has arrived, and everyone is encouraged, urgently encouraged, forcefully encouraged, to be part of his kingdom, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Because, as verse 17 says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Now, even there, we might say, really? Really? But but, but aren't parts of the law void? I mean, when you go back and read the Old Testament law, it says things like offer bulls and goats and lambs. We don't do those things now. So, 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 So don't we say when we read that in the Old Testament, those things are void? The Old Testament has become void in that sense? No. What Jesus is saying is, it's not void. The Old Testament has been fulfilled. It's been fulfilled in Jesus. One of the glorious things of going back and reading about the sacrificial system, I mean, Tom recently preached through the book of Leviticus. One of the great blessings of reading the book of Leviticus and seeing the sacrificial system is it's giving us a picture to understand what Jesus did when he died on the cross. The people were sinful and said they would offer an animal in their place who would be slain and his blood would be shed, pointing us toward the reality that when Jesus Christ came, He, the Lamb of God, would shed His blood for us so that our sins might be atoned for. The point Jesus is making to the Pharisees is, the reason I can say you don't understand the law and the prophets, the reason I can say you're not devoted to the law and the prophets, is because you deny me. And the law and the prophets, every, the essence of what the law and the prophets were about, was about Jesus Christ Christ. God the Son, who would live and die and be raised for us. And so Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're not holy, you're not honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not believe the law and the prophets, because if you did believe the law and the prophets, you would believe me. And what Luke is saying to us is, at least one part of their rebellion against Jesus, of their denial of recognizing him as Lord, is rooted in their love of money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, Luke says. Now, in verse 18 then, Jesus brings in this note of divorce. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. What is Jesus doing here? I think one of two things. Honestly, I'm not completely decided at this point, so I'm going to tell you both of them. It may be that he brings up this issue of men divorcing their wives and marrying another, because he's illustrating one way that the Pharisees live unholy lives. So it may be that he's saying, you claim to be followers of the law and the prophets, but I'm going to tell you, if you divorce your wife and chase after another, you're committing adultery. Because what the Pharisees would do is this. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses had given the people uh, this, this possibility of divorce. The, the reason he did so was because if a man put away his wife and she was then out on her own and she was wandering out, it might be assumed if you looked at her, this is a lady that's abandoned her husband. She's out on her own. She's a wicked lady. And so what Moses says is the way that you need to do this is if you abandon your wife, if you leave your wife, you need to give her a bill of divorce so that when she goes around and someone says, have you left your husband? She's able to say no. I haven't. This is my bill of divorce. He has put me away. But what the Pharisees would do is this. They saw that bill of divorce as just something that they, uh, a token they could use that would just dissolve their marriage and they can move on. So, you know, Pharisee Joe is married to his wife, Tammy, and then he sees Susan and he says, I would like to be with Susan and no longer with Tammy. Tammy, there's your bill of divorce. And now I'm going to go chase after Susan and I'll marry her. And the Pharisee might say to himself, well, all is well because I dissolved my marriage. Jesus is not so fast. Just because you give your wife a bill of divorce, that doesn't necessarily dissolve the marriage. If there are no biblical grounds, it's as if the marriage is still intact. It's still standing. And so the first time that you're with Susan, don't be deceived, you're committing adultery. So it may be that Jesus is simply exposing to the Pharisees, you say you follow the law, but you don't. Here's one way you don't follow the law. It may also be, That verse 18 functions in a figurative way. Here's what I mean Jesus, in essence, in verse 18 is saying this Don't separate what God has bound together. It may be that in saying that in verse 18, he's saying that's the very thing you're doing with the law. You're claiming you hold to the law and the prophets, but you're denying the Son. You're denying Jesus Christ. And by doing that, we hold the law and prophets, we just don't believe Jesus, you are separating what God has bound together. Because the Old Testament scriptures all point to Christ. And then, Jesus tells a parable. In verses 18 through 31, he tells a parable, and without looking at that middle section, I think we might miss that this is a parable about the Pharisees. In other words, if you did it in four sermons, and just look at these texts, we might look at this parable on its own. But this parable flows out of Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees. They were lovers of money, claimed they believed the law and the prophets, but they were denying Jesus. And now listen to the parable Jesus says to them. We'll read it, verses 18 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Hopefully now we can see how this parable ties the Pharisees. In the story, there's a rich man who has everything he desires. Uh, The text says, the funny thing is, every commentator I read, when you read the phrase, clothed in purple and fine linen, every commentator I said, uh, somehow all knew that that was a reference to the man's undergarments. I, I don't know exactly how, but let's take it as is. Everything the man had was nice, even the things you couldn't see. And he feasted sumptuously, Uh, This is the kind of feasting you might think of at a wedding, right? Uh, This is the time to have a grand meal. Well, they ate that way. He ate that way all day long, every meal. This man was living life, enjoying all of his riches. Meanwhile, you had a poor man, Lazarus, who was there lying with sores on him, unable to feed himself, just hoping that he could get scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs were licking his sores. I know for us... Uh, dogs can be, you know, kind of arouse our affections. Oh, sweet dog. That's not the picture here. Picture here, the nasty dogs that would wander around when they're licking his wounds and not doing a favor. The idea is Lazarus is so weak in his sickened state that he can't even fend the dogs off. And then they die. Now, we don't need to press a parable at every point. This parable does not teach every rich man goes to hell, every poor man goes to heaven. Obviously, the notes Jesus doesn't include here is the rich man obviously was, was not believer. That's evidence in his life. And Lazarus obviously was. But in the story, Lazarus is in Abraham, uh, in paradise with Abraham there. And the rich man goes to be in Hades in the place of torment. He's suffering as if there's a flame always on him. And he looks and he can see Abraham. He sees Lazarus there with Abraham in this place of paradise. Asks Abraham, will you get Lazarus to dip his finger in some water just to cool my tongue so I can be out of this anguish? Abraham said, that won't work. Uh, there's no way to get from where you are to where we are, from where we are to where you are. There's a chasm fixed between us that no one should cross. And then the rich man has another plea. He says, then will you send Lazarus back from the dead? so that he might go to my five brothers, lest they end up in the same place I am. And Abraham's response is, they have the law and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. They can read the scriptures. And the rich man answers, no, 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 no. That's not sufficient. If you would send somebody back from the dead, raise them from the dead, so that they could speak, having come back from the dead, then they would believe. And Abraham says, If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Do you see how Jesus in this parable is speaking about the Pharisees? They have the law and the prophets. They have everything they need that teaches them Jesus is the Christ, the one to whom they should bow, and they won't do it. They might claim they believe the law and the prophets, but they don't. And as proof, even when Jesus rises from the dead, they still don't believe. It's amazing, actually, how many people knew Jesus rose from the dead and refused to believe. Have you read the account in Matthew? It's kind of an amazing account. The guards are standing there, an the angel from heaven comes down in bright light, removes, moves the stone out of the way so that the man faints like dead men... Jesus walks out of the tomb, the men wake up eventually, see what has happened, they go back and they tell others, this is what happened. Angel came, we passed out, Jesus is gone. He's walked out of the tomb alive. He's been raised from the dead. Everything they said actually happened. And you know what they do? What takes place isn't revival. What takes place is scheming. Although we know now that has happened, we refuse to believe. And so, here's some money. Let's tell this story. That's how Matthew tells it. That's the very thing that the Pharisees did. If they would not believe the Scriptures, which they weren't, then they weren't even going to believe Jesus when He rose from the dead. And what Luke wants us to see is that kind of rebellion, at least in part, is rooted in the Pharisees who were lovers of money. So, if we are at a position where we say, I'm not really sure that I want to use my money to try to store up treasure in heaven, to provide opportunities to make friends for myself who will receive me into eternal belongings, I'm content just kind of to play money in a neutral way. Jesus says, that's not really an option. Either you're going to love money and serve money, or you're going to love God and serve God. And as those who love God and serve God, we're going to seek to serve God and love Him in regards to how we use our money. Now, this morning, I think we can then have this mindset with regards to our money. One, we remember God has given us everything we need. He has given us what we need most in sending His Son, Jesus Christ. At one point... When we were enemies of God, His Son died for us, was buried for us, was raised for us, so that we might not die in our sins and face His eternal wrath in hell. Like the rich man in this story, that should have been our fate. But instead, God gave us His Son. Consequently, we owe Him our entire lives. He has redeemed us and has made us His own. But in His grace, He said... You don't even have to come up with it. I'm going to give you some of my resources to handle so that you might handle them faithfully and gain great blessing in eternity. That's the blessing money provides. Or at every step, the enemy is saying to us, hold tightly and live for this age. But if we do, brothers and sisters, it will pull us toward hell just like we see with the Pharisees. And so this morning I want all of us to pray and ask the Lord Lord would you enable me to be a faithful steward of what you have given. Not this is not my, my secret campaign to you know you give money to the church and somehow it profits me. I don't I don't determine my own salary, right? And and I want to be a faithful giver. I used to never talk about money. I've mentioned this because I was I grew up in the 80s For those of you who were around in the 80s, Jimmy Swaggart and Jimmy Baker, all these television preachers, they were always just about trying to gain money, and I thought, I just don't want to talk about it, because I want to make sure that people understand I'm not that guy. But then I kept preaching the Bible, and it kept coming up again and again and again, and here's one other situation. So instead, I I want to take this approach. As a pastor who's called to give an account for your soul on the day of judgment, if I do not hold out for you the opportunity you have to use God's money well, then I would be robbing you of a chance of eternal blessing. I to encourage us all. Let us walk by faith and faithfulness to the one who has met our greatest need. And this morning, we can both be reminded that he has met our greatest need and we can visibly proclaim once more, Lord, we have heard your word and by faith, we will walk in obedience to it as we come to the table. If you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, You see this very picture in the text of a man in eternal torment, such torment that he wants someone to dip a bit of water on his finger and put it on his tongue. That is a picture of the judgment that awaits everyone who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And let me say one other thing. You may be an unbeliever and say, I have loved ones who have died and they didn't believe. And if I acknowledge that Jesus really is the Christ, then what I am acknowledging is they died without him. But let me turn that around one second and say, if your loved ones have died without Christ, then doesn't this story suggest to us that they want you to hear and believe what they have failed to believe and are suffering for it? Seems to be what the man does here. Please let my five brothers know so that they might not face this fate. This morning, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, you have an opportunity to repent of your sins and trust in the one who lived and died and was raised. If you would like to talk to me or somebody else about that after the service, we would love to talk to you, and then we're going to encourage you to make that public in being baptized, that you're a follower of Christ, by being immersed in the water and brought up again, showing you've been united with one who lived and died and was raised. So if you're not a believer, I'm going to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. If you are a believer, you've already professed your faith in Christ, you're a member of a gospel preaching church, we want to invite you to join us as we come to the table this morning. We'll come row by row from the outside around, take one stack of two cups, the top one will have juice, the bottom one will have bread. Will then return to our rows to the inside, all the while singing, "Jesus, I my cross have taken," a reminder that when Christ called us to follow Him, He called us to lay down our lives, and our money is just one small part of laying down our lives to follow Him. So let's take a moment of silence this morning as we prepare to come to the table and give thanks to Christ.